it's one thing to, you know, we understand that we don't know our future. Right. We, we don't know what's happening for us later today or tomorrow or next year if we get there. Um, and we know that, you know, we understand that. And yet to not know your past, mm-hmm. to realize that you don't know the truth of your lived reality um, is a different kind of mind bend. And if anybody has had this experience of betrayal trauma or the discovery of a secret that's just, you know, informed you that the life you expected that you assumed you were living, that you understood you were living. In fact, you weren't, you know, they'll, they'll understand that. Um, and so, you know, I went through a period of just incredible sorrow, anguish, depression, all of it, um, really trying to make sense, to understand. Welcome, my friends, to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You know, I recently stumbled on this quote on ambiguity by the late comedian Gilda Radner as she contemplated the end in the wake of her ovarian cancer diagnosis. She said, I wanted a perfect ending. Now I've learned the hard way that some poems don't rhyme and some stories don't have a clear beginning, middle, and end. Life is about not knowing, having to change, taking the moment and making the best of it without knowing what's going to happen next. Delicious ambiguity. I love that wisdom so much. Her words also make me think of poet Rainier Maria Rilke, who invites us, as he says, to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And yet, I want to be real with you. Ambiguity sucks, my friends. Sucks. I believe that so much that it happens to be the title of one of the chapters in my forthcoming book. When it comes to grief, ambiguity makes the already difficult journey in the wake of loss that much more difficult. Since ambiguity is a fact of life and often of grief, we must learn to be with it in a way that nourishes us, or at the very least, doesn't tear us down even further. My guest today, Stephanie Sarazen, helps us understand soul-shattering grief in the wake of an ambiguous loss. In our conversation and her wise book, Soul Broken, a guidebook for your journey through ambiguous grief, she teaches us that soul-shattering grief can also be activated by a dramatic shift in an important relationship, such as divorce or a significant breakup, a life-changing medical diagnosis, or a broken connection with an addicted child. She helps us come to grips with how we grieve people who are still alive, but who are no longer who they once were. She is full of warmth, wisdom, humor, and care, and you're going to learn so much from our conversation today, I promise. Y'all, I have been waiting to invite my friend Steph onto the show. So I can't believe I get to say these words. Steph, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Oh, well, hello, Lisa. Hello, friends. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here with you. Yes. Um, oh, so glad that you're here. You all are in for the treat. You heard at the top of the show um, a little bit about Steph's 
journey and to writing this book, Soul Broken, a guidebook for your journey through ambiguous grief. If you're checking out a clip, you can see like per usual, mine is covered in sticky notes and underlines, etc. And we'll going to dive deep into that, all the wisdom, so much wisdom that you brought to us around ambiguous grief and ambiguous loss. Um, you know the drill. I'm going to drop the link to get the book in the show notes, whether it's for yourself or if you have a friend going through any of the activating events, which we're going to talk about what that means for ambiguous grief. You can um, consider that an act of generous grief support by getting that person a copy of her book. So anyhow, um, welcome to the show. And I want to dive in where I have had the privilege now over these past five seasons of asking my guests to help us all unpack our grief beliefs, right? How did we come to believe both, you know, the helpful and the unhelpful ideas and beliefs that we have about grief. And we, I like to do that by asking people to share a story of an early memory of loss and how the adults in your life were modeling grief. What did that look like? What comes to mind when I invite you to think about an early loss and kind of what you started to learn about what grief should or shouldn't be or feel? Yeah, gosh. Well, thanks. Thank you for that beautiful invitation. Uh, you know, my first memory um, of, of grief came around the death of my grandfather mm. um, when I was 12. And uh, it was my mother's father. And they come from, she has a, a number of brothers and sisters, so a large extended family on that side. And um, when he died, uh, which was quite suddenly and unexpectedly, he wasn't sick and he was um, relatively young. He was 70 um, at the time. Uh and in and in good health, you know, by all assessments. Um, what was what I learned from that experience was the power of love and support um, that families and friends, you know, provide to one another. Um, my my mom, my dad, my parents, you know, they spoke um, openly about it. They uh, grieved publicly. I remember um, my dad standing up and saying a few words about my grandfather, his father-in-law. Um, and, uh, and yet, um, as I grew older and experienced more loss um, and, and came to understand that, you know, different people do it differently. Right. Um, I, 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 uh, gosh, it was a, it was a heavy lear learning curve when it came for me in middle age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't what I, uh, expected it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I appreciate so much about what you just offered there. Often listeners know, you know, folks come on and say, my parents didn't talk about it at all. We never talked about the person. They didn't show emotions. And so what I appreciate about your story is there's the both and, which we all know is sort mm -hmm. of my favorite that phrase, um, trying to bring, have us recognize that that's actually how we live our lives. There's the both of the, they were talked about them and they showed emotion and shared stories and the different kinds of losses, which result in grief, another mission, I think, collective mission of ours, right? Which is not just death loss. When different losses come, we can respond differently in parts because we aren't 
haven't been com- per- given permission to recognize it as loss, but also because we're at a different place in our life. We have a different relationship with the thing or the person or the place or the dream that we lost. And so we, we can't reasonably expect ourselves to be equipped or be prepared or even respond in the same way. And that's not even to say the idea that different people have different grief styles. So forget just you grieving differently in each chapter of your life, right? You and somebody else grieving the same loss, it might look really different. So I just appreciate the richness of your story of offering us the, I had this experience and then when it came knocking, I was really not prepared. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you're so right. And, you know, I think it's, it is such a rich experience because, you know, what we see as children, especially, you know, helps to inform our, our worldview. And not until we're, you know, kind of consciously observing others at whatever age, you know, are we, at least for me, what, that's when I was able to notice the discrepancies and a kind of a nuance to your point is that not only do other people, you know, not only do we all grieve it differently, but we grieve differently yes. individually based on who or what we're grieving, exactly. right? And and so grief is just this dynamic, ever-changing part of us that can look so unrelatable in one instance and then absolutely relatable to somebody else in another, right? Because it's the, yes. it's, because of course it's, it's the equal and opposite extension of love, right? So, um, if yeah. there's where there's great love, there's great grief. Yeah. And so somebody who has a much stronger relationship with their grandfather or their dog or their career or whatever it is they've lost than I have, yeah. you know, we, it might look very different, but on yeah. some things it might be very similar. Yeah. No, it's sneaky, I, it's sneaky isn't it? It's a sneaky bitch. <laughs> but part- it changes shape and form. It does. You know, I, to that point, I want to just remind folks, especially folks who are maybe new to the show, listening to this new or have heard about my book, which is the same title is yes, grief is a sneaky bitch. And I think there's something inherently, there might be some inherent sneakiness to grief, but part of why I do the show, part of why I wrote this book, my book, why part of why I love your book and all um, the guests who come by my show who've taken a stab at really um, telling a broader story about grief is I think grief is sneaky because of the cultural problem that we have yes. by trying to pack grief away under the myth of our individualism, uh, that it's something to get through, you know, all of the myths that we've debunked over the years on the show. And so I still stand by grief as a sneaky bitch as a title in part because it gets people's attention and it's cheeky. But part of what I'm really trying to do is make, and I think you are, all the people Mm -hmm. that I collaborate with are trying to make it less sneaky because that's where I think a lot of the suffering comes from because we expect it to be or feel or for ourselves to behave a certain way because of the very little information we've been given about it. Um, yeah, but really right. it's, yeah. it, it's inherent to all of us. hundred percent of us are going to go through it. I was saying before we started hitting record, I'm listening to, um, the beautiful Francis Weller's course, Apprenticeship of Sorrow. And he said this phrase that just really has been like reverberating in my being for the last few weeks, which is grief is a core human faculty and Amen. part. Amen. Right. Like period, end of sentence, exclamation point. 
And the reason we are all so detached from it is because of this sort of cultural problematic individualistic world, like modernity, really, in a way that we've lived. So I love that we are having this conversation today. And in particular, in your book, Soul Broken, you really get at, you know, grief sort of writ large is not talked about or talked about incompletely and inconclusively with a very thin, you know, story. But the kinds of losses that result in what we call collectively ambiguous grief or ambiguous loss is even less talked about, less acknowledged, less permission giving. So I can't wait to share with listeners sort of the unfolding of what you offer us in the book around what constitutes the kinds of losses that result in ambiguous grief, themes around forgiveness and ritual and regeneration. But I wondered if you just share again, to the degree that you want to share, what brought you to wanting to write a book about ambiguous grief? Like what was the story there? And, and yeah, just help us look, sort of set the stage for what you learned along the way and then how you offered that as a gift to us through this book. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Well, much like you, Lisa, I, um, kind of stumbled into the grief space, uh, after a life changing event, uh, that it really shook me. Um, and this now was seven years ago. Um, I discovered quite accidentally or divinely, um, I come, I've come to believe that, um, my marriage wasn't what I had believed it to be. And, you know, for some people, uh, you know, they laughingly joke and say, Oh, lucky, you know, they're waiting for that golden ticket to get out of a marriage they don't want to be in. For me, that was not my experience. Um, you know, this was a 20 year relationship, three children, um, uh, a partnership I absolutely loved and was proud of. And it was, it was, it was devastating. There's really just no better word. It was disorienting. It was confusing. Um, you know, and to, it's one thing to, you know, we understand that we don't know our future. Right. We, we don't know what's happening for us later today or tomorrow or next year if we get there. Um, and we know that, you know, we understand that. And yet to not know your past. To realize that you don't know the truth of your lived reality um, is a different kind of mind bend. And if anybody has had this experience of betrayal trauma or the discovery of a secret that's just, you know, informed you that the life you expected, that you assumed you were living, that you understood you were living, in fact, you weren't, you know, they'll, they'll understand that. Um, and so, you know, I went through a period of just incredible sorrow, anguish, depression, all of it, um, really trying to make sense, to understand. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it, I, I kind of laugh at myself thinking about it now. I tried to intellectualize my way out of it, right? I mm, mean, what this you is can't why, do. This is why <laughs> we're friends because this is, yeah. I mean, right. I've been trying I keep having to set that one down because I keep trying to pick up in my intellectual uh, capacity as like a tool. And then let me see if I can figure this out. Let me see if right. I can. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No. Nope. And so, you know, no. And for me, you know, having those, the, the grandparent um, reference that I, you know, just shared with you as my reference for grief and, and the other grandparents that had died, you know, in between uh, that time and the time of my discovery you know, those were, those were my most profound grief experiences as well as a beloved, um, aunt. And so, 
what I understood though was that my grief this time, it felt different. Yeah. It, there was something missing. And I, I just honestly, I was in bed for six months. I mean, that's hard for me to say because, um, it's true. And it, I feel sad for that, that time in my life for me, for a lot of people. And, um, during that time, you know, kind of after I came out of that, I, I started to really try to process it intellectually and understand why is my grief different? Long story short, I have a background, I have a master's in public policy. So that certainly does not relate to grief work at all, right? I'm guiding people through grief now. I've written a grief book. But for me, I used those skills that I had learned to put together um, a survey and um, put it out online and, 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 the data from that survey was helpful because it helped me see that so many people were experiencing what I was experiencing, but they didn't have a name for it. And for me, the closest thing I could find at the time, and again, this is seven years ago, was the work that um, Pauline Pauline Boss, Boss. Dr. Pauline Boss had done back in the 90s. She was a clinician and she was observing her patients come in for whatever reason she was seeing patients whose loved ones were um, missing in action. Yeah. And so she um, kidnapped, had been kidnapped yeah. or were missing. And um, and so her work, um, though robust and um, just uh, good, good work, yeah. Yeah. was close but not quite to what I was experiencing because it wasn't my loss that was ambiguous, right? And, and, a, lot of, and a lot of her early work talked about, you know, natural disasters was another one where you don't know if they're if they have died yeah or not and so it's like this perpetual holding vigil vigil space and for me i knew that wasn't the case there was no question about um you know aliveness or death this it was my grief that was ambiguous not my loss and so that was really the impetus in trying to to get some data to see if I could connect the dots. I had some hunches, I had a hypothesis, but seeing it was really, really helpful and helped me crystallize it because what wasn't happening for me that I expected to happen based on my own early yeah. grief origins, right? Was what I saw, the, how I saw people caring for my grandmother, uh, grandmothers, right? With um, visits and casseroles and listening to people eulogize and talk about love and share, come together in community and share stories. Yeah. Um, but when you're going through the loss of a, where your grief is ambiguous, we don't have those societal norms to engage. And something, an early thought that I had, like in my grief brain stupor was, where are my casseroles? Why am I not getting a cat? Really, like it was just it's. It felt like I shouldn't my refrigerator, my freezer be filled. Yeah, um, and it wasn't. Now, mind you, it took me three months to share with friends and family um, that I was divorcing, hmm. and there's you know certainly reason for that too. I discovered later, but at any rate, you know that is what got me started on this path of really just trying to understand why my grief was different and then finding a community of people, you know, from my survey or from articles that I had written and were, you know, posted on various outlets saying, oh my goodness, me too. 
and I haven't told anybody or I talked to so few people about it. Yeah. And how do you heal? Well, yeah. Right, yeah. that's well, another that's, loaded that's another yeah. loaded word, right? It but, is another um, loaded word, yeah. And we're going to dive into learn, that. Yeah. Yeah, until you learn, it's just perpetual sneak attacks, right? Yeah. Where until you get to really know grief. And I suspect there's still some like, you know, I I know that I don't know everything. I know there's more to learn. None of us do, by the way. And um, I learn from each other and I learn from your story and from the stories of others. And I think the more we can share that, the more grief literate we'll be as a society. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Hallelujah. Um, Oh, so many things that you unpack there, but I want to make sure that we get into sort of and you said so many people when they read your article said, yeah, me too. And I can, I can already imagine mm-hmm. there are listeners who are listening to this episode already are, who are already saying me too, me too. I had this ambiguity. I want to name, mm-hmm. we're going to dive into like, what are the activating events? What are the common activating mm-hmm. events that kind of lead into this kind of ambiguous grief? Um, I want to dive into the notions of internal and external hope as a resource yeah. and thinking about what is the nature of those things, forgiveness, if we have time to, and even regeneration. I want to name too, you know, the other way in which Pauline Boss later in her work, and I think we collectively in the grief space have thought about grief. There's the, the MIA situation, right? Where someone's missing, where they're physically present, but still in our hearts because mm-hmm. we're not sure what has happened to them. And then there's the ambiguous grief that many people experience when someone is physically present, but like psychologically distant. Okay. So if you have someone in your life who has Alzheimer's or dementia or maybe addiction mm-hmm. where they're there, but they're not there. They're, but in that way, I think that form of ambiguous grief is more closely connected to sort of what you're talking about, right? Which is like, they're still alive, but this relationship, the relationship that we knew, the relationship we were capable of having mm-hmm. is no longer. In your case, it was because of this betrayal. And for many people, it was because of this betrayal, or if we're talking about divorce. But I think there's a broader community of people who can probably really connect with this idea that the grief feels so much more ambiguous. Um, and again, we're not grief thieving or comparing. It's not like one is easier or harder or better or worse. They're all losses are suck. You know, our yeah, goal yes. is to have them suck less, is to to move through our grief that way. So mm-hmm. Just wanted to name that. But for you, when you sat down to write Soul Broken and started thinking about what is it that we need to name when we think about the different kind of activating events um, that can lead to this particular kind of ambiguous grief? Yeah. What what right. what came up for you and what did you want to share with folks? Yeah. So the the research that came back, the data that came back um really surprised me. You know, and, and, you know, to your point about physical presence, but, um, psychologically absent. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Dementia, Alzheimer's, any kind of cognitive decline, traumatic brain injury, for example, um, you know, is included. Uh, but what I didn't expect were answers that included, um, addiction, discovery of a secret like mine, um, but a discovery that wasn't, um, wasn't mine exactly. Other discoveries like, yeah. um, oh, I'm, we're not your real, your biological, biological parents, right? Yeah. Or, um, you know, uh, you know, something of that, that sort. Um, estrangement yeah. was really big. Um, divorce, incarceration, indoctrination. If you think about a cult or a gang, yeah. um, uh, identity change was another one. Yeah. And, 
you know, this was, um, so in so many of these instances, you know, hearing people tell their story often for the first time really helped me to understand that, you know, what I was looking for, Lisa, was to figure out, okay, my grief is different, but how do I feel better? How, what can I do to feel better? So like this ambiguous grief, there's some structure to this grief without these, without a funeral or a eulogy or these norms, right? And what I found from these, the, the people who were responding and talking about their situations was that if shame or embarrassment is internalized in any of those, those activating events that I just listed, and then there's, you know, certainly more, but if there's shame or or embarrassment that's internalized, then what happens is that the griever Again, with no societal norms to engage, they often isolate and grieve alone. Yeah. But it does not have to be this way. And, you know, that really kind of understanding that piece about how many of us stay quiet because there's, there's not a comfortable space to share the truth of our experience. Um, you know, so we grieve it alone. And then what does that even look like? Right. That's what really inspired me to put this into a book. Yeah. To, you know, kind of put together the experiences that have helped me and that others have shared that have been helpful to them really understand that this is a normal and natural response they're having to love, to loss. And so often we go through so many experiences like this through our lifetime, you know, and, it, and again, so many I didn't name, but we have these experiences and we aren't able to understand that what we're feeling is grief. Yeah. And, and, and naming is so important. Like, while intellectualization is. isn't the answer, damn it, I wish it was, mm-hmm. naming it as loss is so profound, which can be a challenge if, as you said, there's shame and embarrassment. It can be a mm-hmm. challenge when it doesn't have that societally recognized, oh, there's a person who's dead. And I mean, we don't even do that well, but at least we have some kind of ceremony or people bring casseroles for those kinds of things. But yeah. all of it starts with, being willing at first to even name it to ourselves, This is a loss. Yes. And exactly to bridge that from that knowledge to the knowledge of how do I invite the people in my life who care about me to also acknowledge and see this as a loss. And part of the bridge that you talked about is moving through whatever shame or embarrassment that might be in the in-between. And I do want to say, whether it's an ambiguous, any kind of grief, the myth that we have in our, in modernity, I would say definitely in our Western culture in, you know, in general is this myth of individualism is so problematic. No grief. You know, as I said, grief is a a core human faculty, Francis Weller said, but no grief is meant to be metabolized alone. It's everything that we're meant to experience is meant to be experienced in community. So I even think people's shame and embarrassment is further exacerbated because of this culture of individualism, right? I think that even pushes us even to the brink. So yeah, absolutely. And you can, you can test that by looking at, you know, just the most obvious is you, your husband died. Yeah. And when you endured that just absolute soul crushing grief. How long before you notified your loved ones? Right. Probably pretty quickly. Yeah. 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 
um, if they weren't there for you already, right? Um, but for an ambiguous griever, you know, for, for me, I didn't talk about it for three months because I didn't want to be talked about. When we come back, Steph explains the uniqueness of beginning to process a loss that carries the burden of secrecy and shame. She helps us unpack the necessity of hope and importantly, understanding the difference between internal and external hope. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Friends, I'm focusing on three C's in 2024. And no, not the C cancer, that C I've been enduring all of 2023. My focus for 2024 is these three C's, connection, collaboration, and celebration. Why am I telling you that? Well, my friend, that's because I want to connect and celebrate with you this year. As I've shared in previous episodes, my book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, an Uncensored Guide to Navigating Loss, is now available for pre-order. Seriously, this still gives me the chills every time I say it. As a first-time author, I'm learning that pre-orders of the book are really important to show bookstores, which happens to be my favorite place to hang out, and my publisher, that the shelves need to be stocked fully when the book drops June 4th. So I realize this is a perfect opportunity to rock two of the C's I'm focusing on in 2024, connect and celebrate. On May 22nd, which also happens to be my birthday, I'm hosting a book launch party celebration, and I'd love to have you join me. After the show, all you need to do is visit your favorite online bookseller like bookshop.org, amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com and pre-order a copy of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, an uncensored guide to navigating loss. Then make sure you're following me on Instagram at Lisa Kefauver MSW. That's Lisa K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R-M-S-W. And drop me a DM there to let me know you pre-ordered your copy and I'll share the party invite link with you. I can't wait to meet you, to thank you for supporting the show and, of course, the book, answer questions about the book, dish about behind the scenes of the podcast, and more. And, of course, just take some time to celebrate our lives together. Plus, I've invited a very special guest to join me as co-host. I can't wait to share that reveal with you soon. So after you've pre-ordered your copy of Grief as a Sneaky Bitch on your favorite online bookseller, don't forget to message me on Insta that you did. I'll send you the party invite link and the first of my many thank yous for your support. I know it's just a Zoom party, but I think I'm going to get dressed up in something fun and festive. How about you? Would you like to stay in touch with me off the air? I know I'd love to connect with you more for sure. Maybe you're looking for some grief support tips or some behind-the-scenes content from the pod. Maybe you'd like to know the sources of my own learning about grief and what it means to survive and thrive in the world in the wake of loss. I'd love to share all of that with you. So here are a few quick ways to make sure we stay connected. First, sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter by visiting lisakefauver.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E. F-A-U-V-E-R dot com forward slash newsletter. 
Just in case you're curious, it's called that because, like grief, this newsletter isn't on a schedule. Second, just head over to your favorite socials like Instagram and follow me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I'm doing my best to post at grief as a sneaky bitch on Instagram too. We'll see how that goes this season. I offer a lot of candid shares there about myself, about the podcast, my work as a grief activist, and of course, my forthcoming book. And third, you know the drill by now. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast platform so I pop up on your screen the minute the next episode drops. Right. For me, there was no safe place to, I didn't know where were my safe places, right? Because we don't talk about grief. So it wasn't until I was in a grief group with individuals also experiencing my betrayal trauma, did I start to view it with a different lens, right? But you're absolutely right. Until we can come together in community, and I believe you telling your story, me telling my story, people being able to name grief and tell their story, that's how collectively we'll come out of this individualism. Yeah. It's my continued hope that we, um, as a collective, move in that direction, right? Because I do Mm -hmm. think that the unrecognized and unprocessed and unmetabolized grief from all the kinds of losses we experience from the, you know, maturational phases of our lives to these ambiguous Mm -hmm. losses, to the losses that we traditionally think of as triggering grief, right? Death loss. Mm -hmm. All of that unprocessed and unmetabolized grief is really at the root of so much of our anger, violence, suffering, and the, the individualism that we buy into keeps us in that loop, right? But it must just be me. So I'm going to keep it to myself. And then I don't process it. So I take it out sideways, cause harm. Then somebody else has experienced loss. And and so we go. Mm -hmm. So my, my, to segueing to the topic of hope, which I thought was a really interesting Mm. way you broke down one of the paths, as you said, to sort of feeling better moving forward with your grief was around distinguishing and understanding the role of hope. My hope, I, I dare to say our hope is that we can be pushing back against that individualism so that as we tell our stories, as we model all the good, the bad, the ugly mm-hmm. of what that experience is like, we're going to reduce some of that unnecessary suffering that is happening. Yeah. Oh, you said that so beautifully, so oh. poignantly. Uh, yes, yes, and yes to all of that. And, yeah. you know, hope, I, 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 it's important to me that I'm not misunderstood on this because yeah. I recognize that hope is a beautiful thing. It is an important part of our human experience. Yeah. You know, there's a, you can find so many beautiful quotes on hope just by yeah. Googling that, right? Yeah. And um, I always think, you know, it's a virtue in Catholicism and it is, as um, Emily Dickinson says, that thing with feathers perched on the soul that sings a tune all day long and never stops at all. Yeah. It's beautiful. We, you know, yeah. hope is a beautiful thing. Um, and I always have the vision of, you know, Cinderella's bluebirds when I yeah. read the Dickinson quote, right? Like, oh, I want, oh, it's amazing. Yeah. But what I learned. And with- we've co-opted the word hope in our culture. We have. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, so like, I, hope is good. Yes, I get it. I, I, um, 
Yes. And for ambiguous grievers, I believe that hope when misdirected can be as dangerous as it is good. And hope then becomes more like a squawking Iago parrot. Yeah. That it incessantly does not stop talking, squawking. It is not the bluebird any longer. Yeah. And what I mean by that, and, and I learned this by being able to, to name it in myself with the help of the group of, of women that I was yeah. in circle with going through this as well. And, and again, when you can't name it, it was on the tip of my tongue. Like there's that behavior again. Oh yeah. gosh, now I'm doing that behavior that she was doing. Oh, yeah. now she's doing the behavior, but I didn't know what it was. And, you know, basically for an ambiguous griever, no matter what your activating event, um, hope presents as a part of the grieving process. And it's tricky because hope is a, I say hope is a double agent, right? Yeah. Hope feels really good and, and then hope can feel really bad. And it's, it's a, it's tricky to distinguish until you know what you're looking for. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Cause I love that when I got to that part of the, of your book of soul broken around recognizing sort of the both and of hope and the particular, which I think by the way is true for I think your lessons work even beyond ambiguous grief, but the, the ways in which you started to distinguish the role of what you call external hope mm-hmm. and the role of internal hope. Help us understand what they are, yeah. like distinguish them, and then why, why do we need to know the difference? What do we need to be looking for? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so external hope is hope directed toward your loved one. Because again, your loved one is still living. Right. And so there's hope that, that, you know, ultimate physical death has not happened. And in a physical death, you know, we understand the finality of it to, to our own personal extent. Right. And, and depending on your faith, your upbringing, you might, you might be hoping to be reunited with your loved one in another life and, and, you know, after death, whatever your, your beliefs may be. And that's all valid. And that can feel really good. But when you've, when you, when you have, when you're grieving somebody to a physical death, you are not hoping that they ring your doorbell. Yeah. That has been removed. You know, yeah. in your intellect, you know, in your being that that's not going to happen. But when you have lost a child to a, addiction and they've run away and you don't know where they are, when you've lost, um, a best friend to estrangement or, uh, any one of the other, ex, you know, experiences. Dementia. Or also, yeah, exactly. Yes. There's hope. There's hope that a cure will be found for that, that cognitive decline. There's hope that a, uh, you know, they'll ring the doorbell and say, I'm, I, I went to treatment and I don't have the substance abuse dependency I did. I'm in, I'm in recovery and, and, you know, we cling to these and I'm not suggesting we shouldn't. Yeah. Because again, hope is a beautiful thing, but we have to be careful about how we engage with that hope. So external hope is where we are focused on our loved one. And it feels really good, Lisa. Yeah. It feels so good because it, you feel proactive. And that's how you might wonder if you're in external hope or internal hope, which I'll yeah. define in a minute. Yeah. But that external hope feels good. It says those things. It says, mm, maybe if I just found the right treatment center. Yeah. Oh, maybe if I just explained myself this way. Oh, maybe if I had so-and-so reach out to them, that would do it. And we're looking for ways to make the connection with the end result 
our, our intention in that is that the end result will be that they return to us, that the relationship yeah. can resume because we miss them. They're our loved one, right? No matter yeah. what the activating event is. Now, internal that, that, hope. You oh, know, before go you go on, I just wanted to offer to all of us, I think part of why, you know, again, loss writ large, but particularly ambiguous loss feels so challenging to us is because there's this lack of agency, right? This lack of our own agency to affect outcome, right? And so uh, particularly with an ambiguous loss, external hope kind of gives us this, I don't, I don't want to maybe say the word, but illusion that we have, right, agency to change or impact an outcome in that way. And that's why it feels so good because, I mean, at the neurobiological level, we don't want to feel like we are, you know, don't have control. That feels can feel very scary. So external hope. And by the way, if you're recognizing, as you're saying, as we're describing this, as Steph is describing this, like, ooh, I, I trade in external hope a lot. Welcome to the human condition. We all yeah. do. So like no shooting mm-hmm. on yourself, as I say. Nope. But I do think external hope, again, as you said, has its place. But I think part of why it feels so good is it gives us some connection to this notion of agency, which is Absolutely. what we what we've lost when we found out our, you know, a secret has mm-hmm. been kept or or when somebody has turned to addiction and we can't do anything about that addiction, right? That we lose that agency. And external hope is like, oh. Like it's a little yes. invitation to feel like you have it back. So, so that's external hope. We, we can, we can visit there, but we don't want to hang out there is what you're saying. We, we don't, but you know, for some of us, myself included, we're there a really long time. Yeah. And even when, you know, and so there's, I have a hope survey on my website and collect, yeah. continuing to collect data on hope. And I appreciate anybody. It's anonymous. I, the data is just helpful to, for, to me to understand how to help others. Right. Yeah. And what I found is in, in my research when I first polled on hope was that 94% of us have experienced ambiguous grief at least once in our lifetime where there's been a, a change or death of our relationship and we are not able, we are not sure how to grieve it. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. we don't. Um, and for of that 94% population, um, 60%, over 60% indicated that they stay in external hope yeah, more than internal hope. And they cycle in between. So yes. whether your, you know, loss of this person in your life happened last week or a decade ago, yeah, you may still be cycling in between. And it's, again, welcome to the human condition. It's because, of course, you get a new idea. Oh, there's new research. Oh, there's yeah. a new, there's an yeah. advancement. So maybe they'll change their mind. Maybe. Yeah. You know, and yeah. so we we hold that hope. Um, but external is a hope, word, by the way, illusion, because external hope mm-hmm. keeps us from being present to what is. That's right. It's a denial mechanism, right? Yeah. And uh, and it's understandable. So does, so. by the way, rumination. I always talk about rumination is also a denial or an avoidance. It uh, or you know, right, the shame cycle that we get. It keeps us guilt. It keeps us actually from being present to what is, and then what is possible. Well, right. that's why internal, you're exactly right. And that's why internal hope feels so uncomfortable because it exposes all of that, right? Like, and external hope, yeah, it, it, internal hope doesn't feel good at first. Yeah. But what, you know, a lot of things don't. We have to become aware of what it is. And the more aware we are of it without judgment, yeah. without attachment, just to name it. Oh, okay. 
that's I'm an internal hope. And internal hope is hope directed to yourself in the new experience of life without your loved one as they once were. I am not suggesting that internal hope means that you are turning off your love for that person or you are turning off your deeply desire. Yes. I mean, you can't. I of course you can't. And you know, it's it's hard to it is hard to acknowledge that you're for many that you're turning into internal hope because what that means is you're not directing your energy toward external hope. And and it can feel kind of like leaving your loved one on the side of the road, right? Yeah. It can feel like giving up. Yeah. Right. But you're not. You're you're choosing to reimagine your life for yourself. And that, to your perfect point, is hard because we are in denial otherwise. We're not able to stay in the present moment and really digest, metabolize what it is, the reality of what it is. And so internal hope looks like I am going to do something good for me. I am going to engage in something I enjoy. I'm going to try a new skill. I'm going to meet a new friend. I'm going to, you're investing in yourself, right? You're not going back to your old haunts with your person. You're not, you know, spending time doing research or writing letters or bids of familiarity to try to bring them back in. You're not, right? And now, you know, it's 2 a.m. on a Saturday morning and you find yourself on Instagram wondering or you're doing a Google search to see what might come up. It's going to happen. You can say, okay, I'm, this is external hope. Yeah. I'm going to get out of it. Right. And again, we cycle in and out, in and out of it. Which but it, again, hope, see, it's a double agent. It is a double agent. Mm-hmm. I just love, love, love this description. This chapter had lots of sticky notes and, yeah. and, you know, underlines in it because I think it was just so useful. Again, I think beyond the, you know, this beyond ambiguous grief, it was just such a helpful reframe or conception. And, because, you know, I love language there, you know, my narrative therapy history. I just loved the invitation and you use the, a lot of invitational language in this book mm-hmm. too, which resonated for how I approach my work, which was that kind of curiosity, like, oh, I'm noticing mm-hmm. I'm in external hope right now. And it's not a yeah. judgment. It's not full of laden. Mm-hmm. And we can notice that we can vacillate. Like, what might it yeah. mean for me to be, what might it look like to be in internal hope? What next, yeah. you call it the next right thing in the mm-hmm. book. Right. Um, I always think about um, the amazing poet David White's poem, An Invitation Start Close In. Like when we feel overwhelmed, well, how would that look like? Like what would being an internal hope look like when I've spent all this time being mm-hmm. devastated in external hope? And I love this notion mm-hmm. of start close in, right? Just yeah. what's oh, that I love next? That. Or I feel like Oprah said 20, 30 years ago, what's mm. like next best thing? You know, it's not the right thing. It's not the perfect thing. It's just the next Thing. And that's how we yes. keep, I would imagine, keep dipping our toe in internal hope. Yes. This is just, okay, what might, being curious, what might it feel or look like for me to be in internal hope? It might be yes. oh. doing something kind for myself or, yeah. Absolutely. And again, just remember, it. if anybody's listening and they're thinking, you know, okay, I'm going to try this, I'm going to be more aware and intentional with my internal hope, it is uncomfortable at first because what's happening is you're grieving. You're, you're in the moment. And when you're in the moment and you're 
reconciling the truth of your reality. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking. It's painful. And so, yes, it hurts, but I invite you to let it in, name yeah. it, let it in, get in bed, get in the bathtub, do what you need to do to or be with a friend and you know? cry it out, laugh it out, right? Whatever it does, whatever helps you. But yeah. running away from it just delays the inevitable. Yeah. That it not feeling good doesn't mean it's not the thing that you need. Darn it. Again. Ugh. So annoying. This no way life works. No fair. <laughs> um, the reason I said that is, I mean, even in my book that's coming out next year, I feel like I spent a lot of time about the being, finding ways to be with your grief. But one of the things, again, I've been just drawing out even since, since, you know, turning in that manuscript and as I've reading folks like you and, and learning from people is part of that being with isn't just the solitary experiences. I think how we withstand, how we withstand the hurricane force winds of being with our grief is by holding on to others. It's kind of being in community, whether it be through ritual or just presence, or like you described the power of you being in group with people. I do think that part of how, in part because we need people to, I mean, for that metaphor of the hurricane, we need people to sort of hold us up, but also because we aren't the first peoples who, who have gone through it. And for somebody else to bring their wisdom because they've, planted some deep roots, right, to hold us up mm -hmm. can be really powerful. But also mm -hmm. for people to, you know, I use this expression as I close the show, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. And part of what I think we do when we risk being an internal hope and be witnessed by other people is people gift us that I see you just as you are. And we need that so much where, when we're in the muck of being in that grief, yes. as you said, right? Yes, yes. And grief needs to be witnessed. Yes. And whether, again, whether grieving your husband to betrayal and divorce or grieving your child to an identity change or uh, sibling to incarceration, whatever the case is, the love that is equal to your grief is very real. And without the societal norms to engage, how are we able to show others, yes, uh, this is, this is my ending to this relationship, yeah. Yeah. but oh my gosh, does that mean we aren't able to celebrate the love and share the love? And so I encourage people to, uh, and again, this was quite, uh, you know, accidental. It's what I needed. It's what I needed. So I created a faux funeral and I, invite others to do the same. And I invited two people, only two people who knew my marriage best. And they were my witnesses as I, you know, I, I, we met at the, the beautiful place. We, I had readings and music on my iPod. I put on a rock, you know, and yeah. um, a, a photo. And I shared stories about the marriage I loved that had mm -hmm. died. And they shared stories about my marriage. What they that had witnessed. Had, that yeah. what they had witnessed. And that validation is why it, it helps the soul broken among us. Because that, you know, to be soul broken, I say, is to be filled with anguish brought on by the loss of our love and our relationship and often ourselves. And it is often without validation. So creating a ritual in whatever way helps you honor the love that you're grieving is 
transformational. I mean, it, it, it was, it was so transformative for me. Um, I stood up and received the two of them. Like I would have had like their in a line a of a, yeah. I yeah. took them one at a time. Yes. And I heard <laughs> what they had to say. And then I thanked them back. And, yeah. you know, it, um, it was so validating for me, Lisa. And, um, as others have reached out and shared their faux funeral experience, um, yeah. I'm so pleased that it's, it's helpful and healing for them too. Yeah. Who says we can't do it? Right. Just do it. We can do whatever it is for you. We grown up. We can do whatever we want to do. Somebody yeah. made up a funeral once upon yeah. a time. Yeah. Make, so here's a faux funeral. Have at I it. Lo- see, I love see that. how you feel after. Yeah. I love that faux funeral. And, you know, in you sharing that story, that made me think a little bit about, again, the unique challenges of these kinds of activating events, these ways in which we experience grief, um, you know, via non-death loss is our already poor grief support culture, the one that uses phrases like at least, you know, like just don't start a sentence ever with at least, okay? Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. news, news yeah. flash everybody, um, right? Th- that we do that with a death loss, right? Again, yeah. and listeners will know, someone said to me, at least he'll be in a better place soon as I'm taking my husband off life support. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> no, yeah, sir. Uh-uh. Uh, right. And I can imagine, I don't know if you've experienced this. I sure I've been guilty of this myself, but I think for a lot of people who have folks with addiction, you know, family members with addiction or Alzheimer's or in your case, mm-hmm. right, or betrayal stories, people's not only is there no ritual or funeral or something, yep. people don't even want to acknowledge that you're losing something. They want to get to the, well, at least you're better off knowing or at least blah, 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 or, you know, you had these many years, or there's just this denial of, or they're still alive, so there's still hope. And while, again, we can trade an external hope for a little while, not being able to say, yeah, but I lost this, this love, or this dream I had about a healthy child, or this Mm -hmm. connection Mm -hmm. I had with my partner who literally can't connect me with me in the ways that they could because of dementia. It's We want to have that both. And in this particular way, this ritual that you were just talking about allows you to say, those all things can be true. And I need to acknowledge and honor and begin to metabolize this loss and to do that through ritual. Yes, absolutely. As we begin to wrap up our conversation today, Steph shares what she's learned about grief support when it comes to ambiguous loss and the nature of our path in grief as regeneration, not as a recovery to who we once were, but as a newly emerging self. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. You may or may not know that I show up in person and online in many more places besides in your podcast feed each week. In addition to the keynote addresses and workplace trainings I offer, I've had the honor of leading a series of online grief workshops recently with a community of grievers just like you. In fact, the folks that have shown up for the first two workshops were all listeners to the show. If you're looking for an intimate online gathering space to feel seen and heard in your grief, to learn and practice the skills that will make navigating grief just a little bit easier, 
Join me for one or more of my upcoming workshops in the Reimagining Grief Together online series. You can learn more and sign up at the link in the show notes or head to lisakiefover.com today after the show. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. Friends, I'm excited to share something. This new season of the podcast, season five, I'll be dropping episodes weekly. Yes, you heard me correctly. New episodes will drop each week. So make sure that you're follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode when it drops. If you're not sure how to do that, you simply head to the Grief is a Sneaky Bit show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, and then tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click the follow button. After that, if this podcast means something to you, if it's helped you in some way, why not leave a five-star rating and write a review? You could also click the share button and send the show to a friend who might need it too. I appreciate every one of you for listening, subscribing, and sharing the show. And we, you know, what you describe is what I call the grief cooties. We don't know what to say. We don't want that. Yes. Sorry for you, Lisa. Sorry for you, yeah. Steph. But no thanks, but no thanks. And, you know, you can tell the difference between, um, you know, after the shock wears off, after the grief, um, it, when the grief subsides a bit, you might be able to then uh, recognize people who are asking because they care about the details. Yeah. Um, and because they care about you or yeah. because they're, you know, wanting the scoop, like the inside yeah. scoop. And, and I think I like to think that, you know, in our grief, uh, illiterate society, we're getting a little bit better, but long way to go. Um, we don't know what to say. And that's part of why people like me don't talk about it right away. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if somebody has died a physical death, what I've also learned because, um, somebody had reached out and shared this with me was that, they don't share the details of their loved one's death because of the shame and embarrassment around it, because mm-hmm. somehow that minimizes the pain. So if somebody yeah. has died by suicide, if somebody has died by um, overdose or some other way that society so deems unacceptable, yeah. judgy, then the, what the grievers have less right to grieve. They feel yeah. less, they feel they should feel less support. Absolutely not. And so, you know, yes, to be able to, to stand in and tell our story is important, but we also, as a component of that, have to learn how to listen yeah. to others. And when, you know, what I say is if you don't know what to say, yeah. and for a lot of us, that's the case, right? Because we're, we don't learn about this growing up. Yeah. If you don't know what to say, if you feel overwhelmed, prepare yourself and say, thank you for telling me. I'm so glad you told me. Yeah. If nothing yeah. else. Exactly. You, you can't fix it. Don't try. Yeah. You know, you oh, can't no. change it. You can't. And again, back to control. Damn it. We can't control this. You can't change it. All we can do is validate and show up. Yeah. Thank you for telling me. I'm so glad you told me. Yeah. That honoring space is so important. Yeah, You know, you were just, as you were just sharing the kind of the various scenarios and thinking about 
the ways in which we experience ambiguous grief or the ways in which we are often disenfranchised from claiming our grief, as you were just saying in those scenarios mm-hmm. where maybe somebody died by suicide or somebody died, some, something that is socially stigmatized, somebody died of overdose. And so it's not that they're not honoring the fact that you lost someone to death, but we don't really get to engage in the social contract of feeling seen and held to the degree that we are again in our culture because of this story. And so the more we as grief supporters can make space for people to feel safe, to share those details if they want, or to be able to proactively even acknowledge, I can imagine that sometimes it feels uncomfortable to talk about this because of our social stigma. And I just want you to know that I'm here for it. I recognize your loss. I honor you. Like how powerful would that be? Oh, I mean, I'm emotional just hearing you say that because, um, you know, that's, uh, Oh, that would have just been a game changer for me then, you know, and again, really, I have wonderful, loving people in my life. They did nothing wrong. How could they have known any better? They don't know, right? None of us do. And I certainly, I wasn't really disclosing, right? And, and, and then when I did, you know, they're grieving too. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, we don't know what to say. So oftentimes we say nothing. Yeah. We say the wrong thing. Saying nothing. We say nothing, which is saying something. Saying nothing is saying something. So yeah, maybe just an invitation. Um, I hope that emotionality felt like a good emotionality. Oh, and if, it did. And if for each of yes. you listening, if that felt like it resonated for you, I just want to offer for all of us, because I imagine all of us have someone in our life who's experienced some kind of either disenfranchised grief, so disenfranchised loss or ambiguous loss, um, you know, Besides saying the nice words or the kind words, maybe even be brave enough to instigate, maybe be brave enough to say, I can imagine you might be having a hard time finding safe spaces to be able to tell tell your story. And I just want you to know I'm one of those spaces whenever you're ready, if you're ready, whenever you're ready to be really proactive. What a powerful transformation. And by the way, when you do that, you're not just gifting a gift to that person, you're enacting a kind of ritual or a way of being in the world that will then elicit that person to be able to do that for somebody else or maybe for you when it's your turn because back to my unfun statistic, 100% of us will be in that place. We're going to be, we're both griever and grief supporter many, many, many times in our lives. Mm-hmm. So when we can enact and act in ways as grief supporter that nurtures um, seeing and knowing it's a gift all the way around. It is. And you know, grief is a gift. I can't even believe I hear myself say that. I know. I know. Because it is uh, so not my early belief, right? It was the mangy house guest that wouldn't leave. Yeah. And, you know, I've come to believe that through my own experience and then just the so many stories that have been honored to have been shared with me, it's, it's, you know, it's a portal to our yeah. better understanding, to our greatest and highest selves, if we allow it. If right? we allow but it. It's, it's so uncomfortable. I totally understand why some people reject it, close the door. Yeah. But, you know, it is um, it is a unique human experience. It's, it, is the, it is love's invoice. You know, your husband isn't grieving you. You got stuck with that bill, right? You picking up, you're picking up the tab. And yeah, yeah, it sucks. And it is an, also an honor in some way. 
it's to an honor. And I see the, we see if, as you said, if, if you're willing to get through the muck and, and be with the metabolizing, you are, I feel awakened to the realization that we are all deeply enmeshed and deeply entangled in what all, I mean, beings, planet, earth, people, et cetera, awe, joy, wonder, my capacity. Like these are all the things that can, grief can move us in profound ways. As, and to your point, it's the both and, and how we started our, probably early in our conversation by saying, and when we aren't able to be with it, not because by the way, it's a personal moral failing, but because how would we have known how to do it? Because the systems yes. in our world don't support it. But, and when we collectively and individually don't, the flip side of not being with our grief, because it's there, whether we acknowledge it or not, can be really harmful. That's where I feel a lot of anger and violence and othering happens because we haven't come to grips, you know? So I appreciate that. And, and just to circle back to the invitation that when we are find these rituals, these communities, the supports, ways in which we can be with our grief, um, there's transformation that happens. There isn't, by the way, going back to like, and we're all better or we were who we were before. Um, you and I were chatting a little bit, um, earlier and you, you speak in towards the end of your book about this notion of recovery. And I told you sometimes that word gets my hackles all up. I mean, have, if you're watching on video, I have no hair left post chemo. Well, it's coming back. So yeah. there's not that many hackles, but anyways, the word recovery gets my hackles up a little bit because I think there's that myth of like getting back to, but you use the word regeneration in your book when you were thinking about how we move forward with our grief and the kind of transmutation or the metabolizing that we do. What does regeneration mean for you? How do you think about that when you think about ambiguous grief? Yeah, well, this was something that, you know, early on, as I was, as I said, I was trying to kind of intellectualize this and using quantitative and qualitative analysis to see if I could, you know, figure it out. Um, it was interesting to find, you know, the things that I did. And, and it's, it, it, um, what the outcome looked like at the time, early on, again, this would have been, you know, the, the year after, um, it, it was recovery and recovery is the language that is used yeah. um, in a lot of different circles. So as I was learning about grief, as I was reading everything I could uh, at the time, as I was, you know, I was really just looking for somebody. I was really looking for the book I wrote. I was looking for somebody to kind of be like, oh yeah, I went through this and here you go. Here is how you, here's how you go through the grieving process, right? Yeah. Of an ambiguous, when ambiguous, when your grief is ambiguous, here's the process for healing to feel better. And I didn't find it. But um, what the data was showing me was that, you know, everything was pointing to recovery. It's like getting to this golden age of recovery. And in recovery, I don't quite know what it looks like, but people are living there. And the best, you know, next best example I could find were people um, in uh, alcohol or substance or behavior abuse recovery, right? Where yeah. They were learning to live without that substance or behavior addiction. Yeah. And did a lot of work to get there. So I co-authored the ambiguous grief process model based on this data and recovery was kind of the end point, right? But as I continued to go through the experience myself, I too took umbrage with the term recovery. And, um, 
And I'm like, well, this really isn't the best word. Like, who thought of this? Yeah. Again, somebody figured, somebody named yeah. it once upon yeah. a time. And then as I was writing the book, I went to my editor and I said, you know, I know that my data for the process model is, ends yeah. with recovery, but I don't think it does. I I don't even like the word now. I can't stand it. And I and I want to change it. And she's like, well, we don't want to bait and switch your the yeah. readers here, right? That doesn't yeah. feel... And I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that either. But I do want to offer something new that has yeah. like, you, you know, you write the yeah. book and then you go, wait a minute. You, you I'm already, my, I'm already yes. like, I'm already like, Oh, I wish I would have, you know? Yeah. yeah. And you know, we've been talking about how grief is a portal if we allow it, yeah. um, how grief can transform us, can change us, you know, and in a basic way and like the most basic way, the most and most important way perhaps is with more compassion, allowing us to just be more compassionate human beings. Right. And, you know, to prevent it from coming out sideways somewhere else down the road through anger or violence or whatnot, right? So um, as I was writing, I thought, you know, the etymology of the word recover is I also take umbrage with. I don't want to recover, which is derived from the French covert, which is to cover so as to not return, to cover so as to hide. I don't want to hide this. That's part of the yeah. problem is we're hi- recovering yeah, yeah, this. Yeah. I don't want to recover. Yeah. What do I want? And then I found the word regenerate. And that it. is what I put. I Googled what I wanted and the word regenerate was close. And it is to be born again yeah. at a higher or more spiritual level. And I thought that's what this is. Yeah. That's what this is. I think we do get to a place we can call recovery. And in my mind, I see it as like Dorothy landing at Oz. Like she finally gets to the Emerald City. And then also she's like, wait, what? This isn't quite what I expected. Um, But so, yeah, to regenerate is to be born again in a better state, a greater, higher state for our spiritual selves. Yeah. And um, again, darn it, that we can only regenerate from loss, yeah. right? From pain, from anguish. Yeah. But there's there's beauty in that to be found. There's beauty in that to be found too. And I would, I don't want to speak for you, but I would imagine even, rege- I mean, regeneration isn't also like anything else, a place we get to and we're done. Like part of our work in, in these, in this time we have here in these bodies is this cycle, Right of loving and losing and regenerate metabolizing and regenerating and loving. And even within our one loss, you know, we're fluid. We're not in the course, you know, the stages model is a mess. We're mm-hmm. not moving through that. And so right. if you're hearing this some way where you feel maybe you haven't had a taste of what it feels like to be in that regeneration phase, or you've been there, but you feel like you might be slipping back just to remember, you know, that we're much more, it's all really a continuum. I had a guest on, I think it was last season, Cecily Saraski talked about this. I think the episode was called discovering aliveness. Go check it out. It was such a beautiful conversation. Her, her child um, died and accidentally ingesting fentanyl and a senior in high school. And she, and I'm going to, I don't want to butcher it. So go Mm -hmm. back and listen to this episode, but to your to this point is she talked about it's not like happiness and sadness. That's not our goal in life, that, that we are living on this continuum from numbness to aliveness. Yeah, so it's beautiful. And aliveness includes sorrow, sorrow, pain, right. and in all of it, exactly. and joy and exactly. happiness. 
Yeah, and part of what absolutely. our tendency is, is to be in the numbness, which by the way, also neurobiologically protective factor, like we're in denial and numbness. We need that too, because we can't take it all in all at once. So I'm not even like, yes. again, even when we do these like continuums, we want to be like good, bad. Um, I think like numbness has its place, but too often, too often when we're too, don't, aren't equipped and supported in our communities and our culture mm-hmm. to, to, to move out of numbness, we miss aliveness. And to your point, aliveness is joy and wonder and awe and heartbreak because we only can experience those things when we love something, when we care for something. So regeneration, for those of you who are listening, depending on where you are, um, you know, in this particular season of your life is how I would think about it. It might not feel, it might not feel there yet, but just recognize that we're, yeah, we're in this continuum. We're in, we're in this continuum moving towards aliveness. Yes. And that's how I think about regeneration. Yeah. Oh, I love that, Lisa. And, and, you know, it's, it's um, integrating your grief. And during the period of regeneration, you're integrating your grief into life as it is, into yeah. the reality. And which means some days are really hard, even still. And, yeah. and some days are not. And, and it's just, it's a, because con- it's a continuum. And, and something that I didn't realize in, you know, coaching people one on one through ambiguous grief experiences is that there is overwhelmingly, a consistent surprise that grief does not heal. Grief is not healed at the end of our eight week session, yes. right? Like, oh, yeah. so it, we have eight weeks. I'm not healed from this. I'm no, yeah. ma'am. I'm sorry. No, let's yeah. just, let's talk about this. It is how it's repackaging it. It's reshaping our grief by getting it out and, yeah, and touching it and holding it and really looking at it for the first yeah. time, yeah. you know, many instances. But to say we're, healing from grief is something that has been an evolution in myself as well as I've allowed myself yeah. to have the experience of it is yeah. oh just like love yeah grief never really goes away no and I think I think we're healing why with would we grief, want it to not yes. from grief yes. I think we're healing yeah. with grief yeah absolutely and and my argument you know has become you know why would we want it to why would we want it to go away because it is a part of love yeah, it's an yes. aspect of love, and um, it's a beautiful part of our human condition. It's so hard, even though it sucks sometimes. Sucks, yeah. yeah. sucks sometimes. I love that. Um, you know, as we close our conversation today, sort of this reminder, this continuum, this regeneration, this healing with grief. This notion is that this life, this one life that we get, if we believe in that, or this particular life we're in right now. Let's just say that, in case you believe in multiple lives, is about the ing, not the ed. We're in it. We're ing everything. It's the ing, not the ed. And um, if we can keep being present to the gifts that come with the ing, and not hurry our way or try to trick ourselves into getting to the ed to the past tense, what a gift! There's so much richness in the in that. Yeah, and whether it is a grief that is being experienced in an ambiguous way because your person is still alive or because you have lost somebody to a physical death and you don't know how you can live without them. Yeah. You do have a choice in the ING. That's a choice that is yours. You can choose to be present and living. Yeah. In aliveness. And um, we don't have a lot of choices for how we lose our people. 
but we can choose the ing. Thank you for that, Lisa. That's a that's a beautiful sentiment. Yeah, that re- resonates back to or sort of calls back to the internal hope, you know, that you talk so beautifully about in the book. Yeah. Steph, you know, because we've had so many conversations off the air, we could I keep going, but I want to make sure that I tell my listeners to check out the link in the show notes for Soul Broken. Get it for yourself. Get it for a friend. Um, you can visit to tell everybody how do they find your website if you want to participate in the study. It sounds like you're still collecting data. I yeah. would that would be great. I would be most grateful. Um, Stephanie Sarazin dot com. S T E P H A N I E S A R A Z I N dot com. And the hope survey is in the upper right hand corner. You can find Soul Broken, your guidebook for ambiguous grief, anywhere books are sold. And I hope you find a nugget in there that is helpful to you and your heart. I'm 100% confident that people will. Thank you so much, Steph, for joining me on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch today. This was truly, truly a pleasure. Lisa, thanks for having me. And even more, thank you for the work you're doing in this space because you're making um, a, a true difference. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be in conversation with you. Thank you. If you've experienced some form of ambiguous loss, and truth be told, so many of us have, I hope you found today's conversation helpful. I hope you heard in our conversation the reminder that your grief is valid. We see you. You can head to the show notes for today's episode to pick up a copy of Steph's incredible book, Soul Broken, a guidebook for your journey through ambiguous grief. Don't forget, while you're online, you can pre-order a copy of my book, Grief as a Sneaky Bitch 2, and then message me to get yourself an invite to my book launch party celebration. Oh, and this season, I've committed to releasing the unedited video version of these shows on my new YouTube channel at Lisa Kefauver MSW. You can go check it out there. Thank you for listening to our conversation. And if you found it helpful, don't forget to share this episode with others who might need to hear it too. If you do that on socials, don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. And of course, if you loved it, leave a five-star rating and write a review wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Mike Moody at Permanent Record for the audio engineering support and Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for providing the music. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.